Before we read our text today, I have a question for you. And I know we're Presbyterians. We don't raise our hands or say amen. Well, we say amen on the inside. It, it, it won't throw me off if you actually let it slip past your lips. But, but here's, here's a question. How many of you have seen that new movie that's out, The Jesus Revolution? Haven't seen it? See it? It's, it's a very interesting movie. Very interesting movie. And the reason I mentioned it is because in the movie, when the, when the Chuck Smith character, and he's kind of the founder of the whole Calvary Chapel movement, when he begins to preach, he's, he holds his Bible up. And the whole congregation holds their Bibles up. And he says, the word of the Lord. And they respond, the word of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying we have to do that. But it was interesting to me that their emphasis was on the respect uh, and the authority of God's word. The word of the Lord is about to be read and taught, and we respond appropriately that it is God's word and it commands our faith and our, our, uh, our obedience. The word of the Lord. Today we read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather that she is to remain quiet. For Adam was found formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the second message in a short series based on this passage. You notice in the passage, Paul talks about something to do with creation. Then he talks about something to do with the fall and the curse. And then, but, but you also realize that this passage is written in the age in which Christ has completed his work of redemption, and Christ's work of redemption has powerful effects on our relationships with each other, and especially in this context, in marriage and in the church. In the church. Now, Paul's primary concern is for how people are to behave in church, whether, what, what they are to do uh, within the church. But the family being the foundational institution of creation and of all human society, what is reflected in church is foundationally true in the family as well. The reason we're taking several weeks to get through this passage is we want to actually open up more fully 
What does Paul mean when he talks about creation and that Adam was created first? What's the significance of that? We talked about that last week. What does he mean when he talks about in the fall, uh, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived, and she became a transgressor? And that seems to have a foundational a foundation for his instruction to men and women in the church. So today we're going to look at the effects of the fall on Adam, on Eve, on Adam's sons and Eve's daughters, and how that impacts us even today. Next week we'll look at the redemptive work of Christ and how that how we are to look in marriage and also our life in the church in the light of what Christ has done in his redemptive work and how that affects us in these areas. All of that is background, and then we'll actually come back to the passage and and deal more directly with uh, Paul's instruction in that passage. And I admit, this is not a popular passage. There are a lot of pastors who would just as soon skip over this because it runs completely counter to our culture right now. It, it, if you actually take Paul's instruction seriously, you will no doubt be called a male chauvinist, a bigot, a hater, and all those ugly terms, and you will be canceled. Except, of course, this is what God's Word is. The Word of the Lord. The fall. My daughter one time asked me why Jesus had to die. And I, of course, being the great theologian that I am, immediately launched into an explanation of covenant theology and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and how, well, actually didn't put it, but I did talk about Adam. Why are we sinners? Jesus had to die to save us from our sins. Why are we sinners? And I had to talk about Adam and the fall. To which my daughter, who at the time was about 10 years old, said this, Thanks, Adam. She has her own little sense of humor, too. Well, what about the fall? Let's read the passage that's recorded for us in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may, not, may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit 
and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I'll stop reading there for a moment. So this is the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. We don't know that it was an apple. It's just fruit. Talking snakes? Well, Satan used an aspect or an element of the creation to deceive the woman. Eve was deceived by Satan. Did you, did you notice in the conversation between Satan in the form of the serpent and Eve how he deceives her? How he deceives her. Let's go back and look at that. He doesn't... Well... He engages in the conversation. She doesn't quite get God's command exactly the way God said it, apparently. I'm not sure how much to make of that. But then Satan directly contradicts what God said. He suggests that God had said something wrong. Did God really say? He, d- he doesn't start out with a direct attack. He starts out with an insinuation that maybe God wasn't being quite honest with you, Eve. But then after she engages in this little back and forth with Satan, he says he does directly contradict. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. In fact, Satan says, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened. You will have a knowledge of good and evil just like God. You will become like God in this area. The woman listens to Satan. She looks at the tree, beautiful tree, beautiful fruit, Probably tasty fruit, delicious fruit. It's a delight to the eyes. And the serpent told me that I will be wise like God if I eat the fruit. Now, who do I believe? Do I believe God who said to me not to eat of the fruit? Or do I believe Satan who says, eat the fruit? and become like God. Eve transfers her loyalty from God to Satan. She was deceived. But it's more serious than just that Satan had kind of fooled her into doing this. She still, being left to her own will, willingly cooperated in Satan's lie and transferred her loyalty. At that point, she became the transgressor. She renounces God and trusts Satan. 
Now, we often gloss over this, which is, well, they ate the fruit. Do you understand what the thought process that Eve had to go through to get to that point? She hearkened, she listened, she took to heart, she trusted Satan. And she acted on Satan's word and not the word of God. What happens? Well, the Bible also tells us that she gave the fruit to Adam, who was there. And this raises a question. You know, Adam wasn't just wandering off in the woods somewhere, suddenly comes upon Eve, who's holding this piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it. Oh, what's happening? Oh, okay, nice fruit. Oh, oh, uh, Adam was there, meaning he was an observer to all of this. Eve may have been deceived and gave the fruit to Adam, but Adam was a willing co-conspirator. He took the fruit. And the covenant being made with Adam as the head of creation, as the, the vice regent over the whole creation, the one who was made in the image of God, he abandons his headship, and he too abandons his loyalty to his creator, and he breaks the covenant that God had made. See, while Paul, in dealing with women, points at Eve and says she was the one who was deceived and became the transgressor, Paul, of course, in other places, talks about Adam, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and so forth. They talked about Adam's role in the fall. He doesn't leave Adam out, but in this context, he focuses on Eve and her role in the fall. There's a brief statement at the end of the passage that indicates that there was an immediate change before the story shifts to God coming on the scene and, 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 and uh, questioning Adam and Eve. There is an immediate change in their nature, in both the man and the woman. Their eyes were open, they were ashamed. The change is that they now in the, know in their own experience both good and evil. They have tasted of God, good, God's goodness, but now they have experienced Satan's evil. And they have embraced the evil of Satan. They have embraced the rebellion against God. They knew now in their own experience both good and evil. And as a result of that, there is an immediate change in their nature and they are ashamed and feel guilty, and they make a feeble attempt to cover that sense of shame, their nakedness, with fig leaves. That's become a saying now. Oh, it's a, a fig leaf of an excuse or a fig leaf of a justification. Something flimsy that really doesn't do the job. Let's make a distinction here between the fall 
and the curse. It helps us to sort things out a bit more. The fall and the curse. Our shorter catechism actually does kind of hint at this distinction in the questions that deal with the effects of the fall on mankind, questions 17, 18, and 19, it distinguishes between the estate of sinfulness and the estate of misery. 17 says, what it asks, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. So there's the fall. It's a historical event. What was the result? Mankind's status changed and his nature changed. The nature changes immediately at the time of the fall. And the indicator of that, of course, is this sense of shame and fear and hiding and so forth. And then the Catechism asks, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate? And I would say that sinfulness of the estate reflects more on the effects of the fall on our nature, on our nature, human nature. The sinfulness of that estate wherein men fell, man fell, consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Now, I want you to understand something. Covenantally, because we are represented in the garden by Adam in the covenant of works, covenantally, Eve was there. She took the fruit. She was deceived by Satan. She bit the fruit. She gave it to her husband, who also transferred his loyalty. But you know who else was there being represented by Adam? You and me. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all sin. In Adam, we were there in the garden being represented by him. And when he sinned, we were with him. Isn't it always easy to talk about other people? Oh, I'm not like those people over there. Uh, it, it was it was even during Jesus' day, there, there was, if we had lived at the time of our fathers, we would not have stoned the prophets. And of course, Jesus said, yes, you would. Which of the prophets have you not killed? Yes, you would. Well, if we had been in the garden, we would have been much smarter than Adam and Eve. We wouldn't have listened. No, we were. The fact is, we were in Adam there. And in Adam, we fell. And it's affected our nature, the sinfulness of that estate into which man fell. We bear the guilt of Adam's first transgression. It clings to us like a stench-filled garment. We lost our original righteousness. Our whole nature has become corrupt. Every aspect of our nature has been touched by the fall and is now affected by the estate of sin. And then from that 
corrupted nature, actual transgressions flow. That's not a very flattering picture, is it? It leaves us on the wrong side of this equation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We were there in Adam by virtue of the fact that he represent us, represents us in God's covenant of works. What is the misery of the estate into which we fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God. We became aliens and strangers to God. Communion was cut off. We are under his wrath and curse. Notice they put the curse, the effects of the curse, under the, under the heading of misery, the misery of the fall that comes with the fall. And so made liable to all miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. We all continue to experience the condition of sin and misery. Even redeemed people still wrestle with sin and misery. We are not immediately delivered out of this estate. In fact, if you wanted to call what estate we are in, we are in a state of, of grace. But we are not fully delivered. We still wrestle with sin and misery. It has gotten into every area of our life. We all, we all experience this, continue to experience it, and it affects the way that we relate to each other, men and women, both in our families and in the church. Let's look a little more deeply at what happened in the fall and the curse on Adam. In verses 10 through 13 of the passage in Genesis chapter 3, we read about, Je uh, about Adam's immediate change, immediate, uh, and again, indicating an immediate change in his nature, beginning of verse 10. Um, well, oh, we've got to actually go back to our, the, the Word of God again in Genesis 3. Because God tells us, uh, as he comes to, to Adam and Eve, he begins to question them. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve hid themselves when they heard God in the garden. Where are you, Adam? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. What does that tell you about Adam's relationship to God? Immediately, there's a change. There's an alienation. I heard the sound of you. Well, who else would it be? I heard the sound of you 
and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. There is another indicator, isn't it? We call it blame shifting. By the way, we, we can point to Adam as the first blame shifter, but guess what? Eve does the same thing. Okay. There's a change in their nature. The woman you gave me, there's fear, there's guilt. There is an avoidance of responsibility. There is all of this that is indicated as a change in Adam as a result of the fall. But we go on, because as God then deals with the serpent and the woman and then Adam, there are changes in all of his relationships. Adam was created to be the head over the whole creation, to be the, the servant of God, but the ruler over all creation. It was created to have dominion over the whole creation. And what does God say? Now, you will work, and your work will be painful. Your work will be hard. Your work will be filled with frustration. When you plant wheat in the ground, weeds are going to grow up. Your work will be painful. It will be filled with hard. It will be hard. It will be filled with frustration. And at the end, Adam, you're going to die. And your body will be dissolved back into the dust from which it was created. Notice that in God's judgment on Adam, the curse on Adam, it directly is connected to what God had commanded Adam to do. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth. Adam, you're still going to be my vice ruler, as it were, but now your dominion is going to be met with opposition at every side. The earth will no longer yield its obedience to you, Adam. The ground will not willingly give its fruit to you, Adam. You will have to work hard, and by the sweat of your brow, you will raise the wheat that you eat and make your bread from. And at the end of a long, hard, frustrating life, Adam, you're going to die. Isn't that a wonder? <laughs> what a great picture, right? I mean, it's wonderful. Well, okay, let's talk about Eve. Something happens to Eve, too. There are changes in Eve. Eve, remember, has been made to be the suitable helper for Adam. Eve is the one who completes Adam. Eve is the one that God intended to enable Adam to, to, to fulfill his creation mandate. When God said it is not good for man to be alone, 
He's basically saying, Adam, on your own, you cannot fulfill this mandate. You cannot be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and you can't even actually exercise a dominion over the earth. You need a suitable helper, and that suitable helper I will take from your rib, and I will make her so that she helps you complete my mandate. So the woman is made in such a way, physically, emotionally, mentally, to be the enabler of Adam, enabling him to do what God intends. Notice the first statement from God about Eve. In pain, you will bear children. In pain. Your childbearing now will be painful, hard. That very thing for which you were created, or part of the the reason you were created, is now going to be filled with pain and difficulty. There's a change in relationship. Adam was to be the head of the woman. And God says, moreover, your desires will be contrary to your husband's, and he will rule over you. Have you ever heard the term, the battle of the sexes? This is where it starts. This is where it starts, and it's an effect of the fall and the curse. No longer the helper. Now, having her own desires which are contrary to her husband's. But notice what it says about Adam. No longer the perfect man. Now he will rule over you. There is going to be conflict. There is going to be conflict between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, and it affects life in the church, too. We can't escape this. When God pronounces this curse on Adam and Eve, we are still there in Adam, and we bear the curse today. It affects us in us, and it affects us in our relationships. It affects us in our relationship to God. It affects us in our relationship to one another. It affects us in our relationship to the creation. It affects men in their relationship to women, and vice versa. The corruption of the whole nature, the alienation, the hardness of life, death at the end of it, the pain, and sometimes the danger of childbearing, all flow from the fall and the curse. I once went to a church that was being pastored by a friend of mine. It was down in Florida. And my friend had become a real, real fan of Jonathan Edwards, reading Jonathan Edwards, and actually, and he wanted to kind of style his ministry after 
what he perceived or what he thought Jonathan Edwards would be like. Well, what's the most famous sermon that Jonathan Edwards ever preached? Anyone know? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you ever read that sermon? The, when you're reading it, it, it is like lightning flashes and thunderbolts that scare you. I mean, it is a scary sermon. The fact is, Jonathan Edwards read his sermons in a monotone. And it was dark in the church. There were a couple of candles on the pulpit, and he was reading his manuscript in a monotone like this. You are a loathsome spider hanging by a thread over the flames of eternal judgment. And yet preaching sparked a revival, the Great Awakening. Now, Ed Edwards didn't do it. God's Spirit did it. But anyway, my friend thought he would preach like Edwards preached. And so the Sunday I was visiting him, he gave a sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of sermon. And then he stopped, said, let's pray. I sang their hymn, and we went out. And I said, George, you got to give the rest of the story. God doesn't leave us hanging over that pit by a slender thread like the loathsome spider. And Edwards uses another illustration. You're like a deer, and the hunter has drawn his bow, and his arrow is zeroed in on your heart, and he lets fly with his judgment. And you are struck down. Because the Bible doesn't end with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. I get an amen. We said last week, after the story of creation, and then the serpent showed up. We say that here, when we talk about the fall and the curse and its effect on us, how it has affected our, our beings, our nature, and all of our relationships, and then we have to say, and then there was Christ. And then there was Christ. Oh, we still wrestle with it. We still bear the, the imprint of Adam's fall. We still bear our, our, our original sin. Though by faith, the guilt of Adam's transgression is given to Christ, and Christ's righteousness comes to us. By faith, our sins are forgiven. By faith, we have a new nature. Actually, by God's grace, we have a new nature. But that new nature contends with the old man. That's going to be the story next week. And that's the context in which Paul writes this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It does take into account the, God, the original purpose in creation. It does take into account the effects of the fall on Adam and Eve. And it does take into account and gloriously ultimately focuses on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and how that also impacts our lives together, our relationships. And what is the... God says, love your neighbor as yourself, brothers. Who is your closest neighbor? It is your wife. It is your husband. It is your... They are your closest neighbor. 
and Christ is helping us to regain. And I should correct, immediately correct myself. We are not just regaining the garden. We are not just regaining paradise. We are actually getting more. This is grace. Marriage does have an end point, doesn't it? We take our vows and we say, till death do us part. Jesus taught his disciples that in the resurrection we will be like the angels who neither marry or are given in marriage. Our relationships will be changed again there. Will we know each other? I think we will. We will have memories of our lives, but all of those memories and all of the experience of pain, all the experience of of hard work, of death, and, and the sickness, and all of that will be subsumed under the glory of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He is teaching us today, through his word and by his spirit, how to bring the redemptive work of Christ back into our relationships and our marriages, and how that also plays out in the life of the church. And that was Paul's ultimate purpose in writing the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We need all this background material to understand, really. And understanding this, I, I had a, conf- a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a friend, and we were talking about this passage. He said, you know, I, th- I think Paul was just writing to Timothy in Ephesus because there were problems in Ephesus that needed to be corrected. There were some women apparently in Ephesus who were, who were uh, not living in a way that was honoring to the gospel. And Paul writes that, he said, but I, I don't know that I would universally apply this passage to everyone. And I said, well, then why does Paul rooted in creation and fall and overlay that with the redemptive work of Christ. That applies to everyone. That's not just a localized problem in Ephesus. It applies to everyone, even people living in 21st century America, which has a culture that is completely corrupted by the fallen curse. This is part of what Jesus meant when he tells his disciples, you are not of this world, and my kingdom is not of this world. We run on different principles. We understand God's word teaching us about creation and its purpose and the fall and its effects and the curse and its effects and redemption and its effects in us. And when the world tells us that we should be living a certain way, that we are bigoted, that we are haters, we are chauvinists, we are all these evil words, we do this. The word of the Lord. I throw that at the world, and I will be standing with Jesus when he conquers the world. That's his promise. Husbands and wives, Peter say, 
you are joint heirs of salvation. Heirs together of salvation. And that's how we, that's the goal, isn't it? In our families, that's the goal in our churches. That's the goal, to be found faithful as heirs of salvation when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word teaches us reality. It's not sugar-coated. It's not all happiness, though our sorrow Though our pain is a result of the fall, ultimately for those who are saved in Jesus Christ, yes, represented by Adam in the garden, but represented by Christ on the cross. Even though we wrestle with these things, we are assured that by faith we will be saved, by grace through faith. And we cling to that promise. Lord, Help us to understand the deeper truths of Scripture and the way that we should live. But also, Lord, help us understand that there is a great joy and reward for those who obey and who believe your word. Let us not do what Adam and Eve did, and that was to believe the lie of Satan. Let us not believe the lies of the world, but let us trust in your word and follow it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.